Good morning, family. Don't you just love that word, family? I was sharing with the congregation at the 9 a.m. service. Yes, I had to preach there too because when Pastor Dwight came to Washington Adventist University, we asked him to do the first service as well, so now he's paying me back. (laughs) Wherever you are, Pastor Dwight, may God bless you too. I want to take this opportunity to thank President Luxton for the invitation to be able to share with you today some truths from God's holy word. It is always a privilege and a pleasure to return to my alma mater here at Andrews University. We spent two and a half years here in the cemetery. I'm seminary. time for the benediction. I was praying I would not do that. In the seminary, we had a great time here today. And again, I thank you for this privilege and opportunity to share with you Today, I bring you greetings from my church, Sligo Church, on the campus of Washington Adventist University, where today we are actually celebrating our ninth annual homecoming, and I have slipped away. So if any of you are watching online, God bless you there at Sligo Church. You shouldn't be watching, but if you are. (laughs) Today, I've simply titled our message, The Great Work. The great work. I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father God, yet again you have brought us safely through yet another week. And we do not take it for granted that you have brought us to this place once again. For the blessings that we received on yesterday or just that, yesterday. But today, we, your people, have come before you, for we are seeking a blessing for today, manna for this day. And now, fathers, we pause to hear a word from you. As always, we ask that you open our hearts, that you clear our minds of all the clutter that has accumulated over this past week, and that you grant us the understanding that is needed. And Father, may everyone under the sound of my voice this day receive the blessing that you so desperately desire to give us and we are so desperately in need of in spite of this flawed, defective, cracked vessel you have chosen to use. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin by asking you a very important question. When you were a child, who was your favorite character in Scripture? And you cannot give the answer, Jesus. For me, I had two. It was a toss between David 
and Samson. Samson, for obvious reasons, because he was strong, handsome, good-looking guy. David, because of his youth, in spite of that, he possessed great courage, even of the mightiest men. But since I've been in ministry nearly 40 years, I know I don't look my age. I still have great respect and admiration for these two heroes of Scripture, but lately I have gained a great appreciation for the death of Paul, the sensitivity of Jeremiah, the crying, weeping prophet, the courage of a Mary who, as a teenager, accepted the tremendous responsibility of carrying the salvation of the world in her womb. For Luke's gospel describes the encounter as Mary being highly favored among women. And many in the religious world have used the word of favor to a disservice. Favor is not some blessing of prosperity that God pours into your life. Trust me today, when God grants you favor, it is responsibility that God places on your life. In recent years, I have truly gained an affinity and appreciation, though, for Nehemiah. As we look in the book of Nehemiah, we see that he has received the call of God upon his life to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that had been in ruin for so many years. In the early chapters of Nehemiah, we read that upon hearing of the distress of those who had survived Babylonian captivity, that he was so distressed and overwhelmed for his people that he prayed and fasted night and day that God would grant him favor in the eyes of King Artaxerxes so that he might return and lead the people of God in the rebuilding process. Please listen to me today. God not only granted Nehemiah favor to the point of granting him permission, but God also impressed the king to provide Nehemiah with the materials as well as all the other manpower that he needed for the task. And some of you have learned during your time here at Andrews that God does provide for our needs, does he not? But let's take a moment and let's go back to revisit Nehemiah chapter 6 as we read just verses 1 to verse 3. Nehemiah 6, 1 to 3. Now it happened when Sambalah, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors in the gates, that Sambalah, Geshem, sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages of the plains of Ono. But they thought to do me harm, so I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? If you've ever been part of any rebuilding project, you know 
that it has its own set of very unique challenges. First of all, there are those who will tell you it cannot be done. Then there are those who will tell you, well, it's not the right time. And then there are still others who will tell you, you don't have a clue as to what you're doing. And then there are those that for whatever the reason, be it jealousy jealousy or contempt, who are determined to make sure that the work never gets done. And this is exactly what we find in Nehemiah chapter 6. Now, the first sign that something is up is when your enemies invite you to go to a place by the name of Ono. Think about that for a moment. When someone invites you to come, especially your enemies, to the village, to the valley of, oh no, you don't need to go. Who says amen to that? (laughs) But what intrigued me most about this entire scenario was not that the walls were finally being rebuilt, not that the attempt to get to Nehemiah to come down by his enemies, it was not even Nehemiah's steadfast courage and determination that really resonate with me. But what intrigued me the most was Nehemiah's reason that he gave for not being able to come down. He simply said in verse 3, listen, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Now, when I read this, the first question that comes to many of our minds is, what makes any work a great work? I submit to you today that there are two things that make a work a great work. The first being this, how long will that work last? And two, who is the work being done for? Please don't miss this today. Nehemiah's declaration of, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down, was simply the prophet's way of acknowledging that the work that he was doing in rebuilding the wall was God's work. But herein lies the challenge, not just for Nehemiah, but for all of us here today, and especially you as graduates. That when you and I are called by God and he's given us the favor and the responsibility to do something. Sometimes when we think, we hear the words, I'm doing a great work and we can't come down, we translate that to mean I'm doing a great job. And I cannot come down. I pastor a very multicultural church in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm the first African-American senior pastor this church has ever had in its history. We have over 100 different people groups. We're on radio all over the city, all over the country, and in Europe. And there are times I have gone to events, whether they be church events or non-church events. Just the other day, I was in CVS buying something, and the woman behind the counter said, You're that guy on radio. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I am. Tip. Tip. Is it tip the name? I said, no, tap. It's tap. It's tap. (laughs) 
Yes, yes, I know you, I know you. And there are times I begin to think, man, people know me. I must be doing a great work. But then God has to bring me down to earth and remind me that I am still the same little boy who grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, who stuttered, who could not pronounce words that began with the letters L, M, or N. And whenever my mom would invite me to, to go next door, well, she didn't invite me, she just told me, to go next door and borrow a cup of sugar or whatever, I would hate it because I would always have to begin the conversation by saying, my mother said, and I would stand there ahead of time before I would even knock on the door and just tap my leg like this and, and stomp my foot just to get my mouth going. Mother said, and to add insult to injury, when I was growing up as a child, my voice was so high-pitched that when people would call our home and I would answer the phone, they would say, hello, Mrs. Tapp. <laughs> I kid you not, God has a sense of humor. But one day I said to God, God, I want, I want to go on radio, and I want to be like those folk on the radio. And I remember taking a brush and standing in front of the mirror the days that I had hair, I would take the brush and pretend... Why are you laughing? <laughs> and pretend like it was a microphone. I would go... Fast forward several years down the road, I, I find myself in New York at a radio station sitting behind the console with the mic in front of me saying, this is AM 1520 WTAT, Minneapolis, New York. Time now, 15 minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock. God had to say, remember, son, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit. You're not doing a great job. You're doing a great work. And the work is not great because you're doing it. It's great because it's my work. Amen. Don't ever be mistaken, young people. You may be doing a great work in business, in the health field, in ministry, but it's not great because you're doing it. It is great because it is God's work. Sometimes as Christians, I wonder if we have lost what our, really, uh, what our work really is. Because this is God's work, then it's got to be done God's way. That's why my favorite passage of Scripture is Zechariah 4.6. It's not by your might. It's not by my power, but it's by the Spirit of God. And if you're going to do God's work, whether that work is being a physician or a nurse or an engineer, a computer specialist, a, a pilot, whatever the case may be, if you're going to do it, then it's got to be done God's way. I was telling the congregation this morning that here's what we fail to understand. We always talk about what the church needs to do. Guess what? You are the church. And I am the church. So the next time you want to say, well, the church needs to do X, Y, Z, you need to look in the mirror and say, what do I need to do? One of my favorite quotations is by the author Oswald Chambers. Some of you may be familiar with the devotional book 
my utmost for his highest. If you have not read it, you need to read, read it. It will transform your life. But this is what he says. He says, prayer does not equip us for the great work. Prayer is the great work. In the class that I teach on prayer, I give my students an assignment. It's the very first assignment, and that is to develop their own personal philosophy, a definition of what prayer is, and, and then I share with their mind. And here's mine. Prayer is inviting God, who happens to be the most powerful force in the universe, to intervene in the affairs of my life, knowing that he has my best interests at heart. And if you're going to do anything great in this life, not in man's eyes, but in the eyes of God, you have got to have God with you. And you can't tell God you can only come in this part of my life and the rest of my life is mine. No, you must be willing to invite God to intervene in all the affairs of your life because God only has your best interests at heart. But the reality is that even when God is with us, it does not exempt us from the attacks and the onslaught of the enemy. And there are three enemies that will always be on the attack for God's people, especially if you're trying to accomplish something for God, something that is worthwhile. The first is the enemy of doubt. The enemy will try to get you to believe that you are not loved by God. Then there's the enemy of discouragement. And lastly, there is the enemy of depression. Our doubts lead to discouragement. Our discouragement leads to depression. And it all begins with coming to grips with the reality that there's a huge chasm of what we expected our lives to be and what our lives really are. We thought like the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel that God was going to rain down fire from heaven every day of his life, but he didn't. And isn't it amazing that when he heard that the wicked queen Jezebel was after him, the, the, the prophet who allowed God, invited God to rain down fire from heaven is now running for his life saying, oh, let me die. Here's the problem with that. Jezebel is trying to kill him. He's running away saying he wants to die. Did you get that? <laughs> Who, whoever says the Bible is boring has not read it. I want to die. Jezebel's coming to kill me. I need to run. If he wanted to die, all he had to do was stay right there. But you see, sometimes we think because God is with us that every day God's going to rain down fire from heaven. And God doesn't always do that. God just wants us to place our trust in him. And here's the news flash for this graduating class of 2018 and those in our congregation today and those who are worshiping online. God never asked us to be successful. 
God only asks that we be faithful. He never asked you to be a success. When you look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, if you compare that to our definition of success today, Jesus was a failure. The Bible says, and you religious students can really appreciate this, the seminarian students, and Jesus baptized no one. You can't tell that to your conference presidents, though. They don't. Oh, no. Elijah wasn't really saying he wanted to die. Elijah was saying he wanted to quit. And there are times in all of our lives we want to do just that, don't we? You wanted to quit when you were up to 2 o'clock in the morning trying to get that paper done. Oh, yes. And then the dog ate it. Oh, yeah. There have been times you wanted to quit when you did not have the money to pay your tuition. You wanted to quit. When you tried your best to get an A in that class, and for the life of you, you could barely squeeze by with a C. There are times you wanted to quit, but again, God did not ask you to be a success. For success in man's eyes is different from success in God's eyes. All that God asks from us is that we be faithful. For all of us have wanted to throw in the towel. Why? Because the reality of where we are has not met up with the expectations of where we thought we were going to be. And many of you think you're going to go out there and turn the world upside down. Some of you may, some of you may not. But all in all, God just says, be faithful. Be faithful. Success tends to be all about you and me. Faithfulness tends to be all about God. Success leaves the results up to me. Faithfulness leaves it up to God. There's no way, if I were to share with you my life story, that I would ever think that I would be pastoring a church of 3,000 people standing here today talking to you only Adventist in my family. A Jehovah's Witness brought me into the Seventh-day Adventist church. We'll talk about that the next time I come back. I'm not supposed to be here. I remember one day standing around with a group of theology students, and they were all talking about Dr. Luxton, who they knew, what president they knew, and who they were related to to get a call to ministry. And then all eyes turned to me. And they said, Tap, that's my last name, Tap, who do you know? Standing there not having any Adventist lineage at all, I looked them squarely in the face and said, I know Jesus. Jesus. 
I know Jesus. God never asked me to be a success. All that God asked for me was to be faithful. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is from the book of Habakkuk, and I want to close with this this morning. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Let me just give you a little backstory. Great book, only has three chapters. Chapter 1, the prophet Habakkuk is complaining to God, God, you're not acting like God. Have you ever felt God's not acting like God? Oh, yeah. Because we expect God to ride in on the white horse and just save the day, don't we? Don't we? And I've told God from time to time, God, you're not acting like God. I need you to be God in my life. And that's what he was saying. Why you let our enemies beat up on us? What's wrong with your word? What's wrong with you, God? Then God responds in chapter 2 and says, the just shall live by faith. But look at chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Look at what it says. I love this. Though the fig tree may not blossom, this is the prophet of Bacchus speaking, nor fruit be on what? The vines. Though the labor of the olive may fail, And the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet, please don't miss this. Here's what he's saying. When things don't work out the way you anticipate it or expect it, yet, when there's no food in the cupboards, no fruit on the vine, no herd in the stall, no money in your bank account. You ever go to the bank and try to withdraw $20 and you only have 10? And you can't withdraw 10 out of the machine? Oh, yes. I'm not talking about when I was a student. I'm talking about just last, well, not last week, but when I was pastoring in New York, my wife will tell you where she is. Where is she? She's here somewhere. When things don't work out the way you thought, you planned, and you prayed, and you fasted, prophet says, yet, in spite of that, I will rejoice in the Lord. When I was here in the seminary, one of our friends was in a car accident, Dr. Lustin, two weeks before graduation. He and his wife were both killed as he was on his way to visit the new church that he had just been assigned. He was going to visit for a week and come back. And on the way back, there was a tragic car accident. 
he died, his wife died, and they discovered when they did the autopsy that she was two months pregnant. His name was Ron. Ron was the kind of guy everybody wanted to be and everybody wanted to know. You would always see Ron with a smile on his face. You know anybody like that? He would always walk around. I remember seeing him in a hallway one day after a major exam. And I said, man, what grade did you get? He said, I got a D. (laughs) You have to know Ron. One day I saw him, and he was walking around the seminary hallway just singing this song. And I said, man, what are you doing? He said, I'm singing a song. I said, what are you saying? Oh, oh he said, uh, the words are, don't wait until the battle is over. Shout now. Because you know in the end, you're going to win. And then he walked away. And I said, man, there's some great theology in that song. And that's what Habakkuk was saying. Don't wait until God meets all of your expectations. Shout now. Because you know in the end, you're going to win. Matter of fact, the name Habakkuk in the Hebrew means embrace of God. Hold on. So I say to you today, God has called all of you to do a great work. But do not be mistaken. It's not great because you're doing it. It's great because it's God's work. And anything done for God in the power of God will always be successful. Maybe not in man's eyes, but in God's eyes. And before I take my seat, I want you to do one last thing for me. Just repeat after me. Don't wait until the battle is over. Shout now. Don't wait until the battle is over. Shout now. One more time. Don't wait until the battle is over. Shout now. Shout now. Shout now. Because in the end, you're going to win. God bless you.